Good morning. Just want to say thank you to a couple of people that said good morning back to me. I want you to know that was wonderful. Thank you for that. We're continuing our study of Jesus's public ministry, um, the life of Jesus laid out for us in Luke. And so this morning we're looking at Luke, Luke chapter 6, verses 17, 17 through 26. And the last few weeks, if you've been looking along with us, you've seen that Jesus has been in the midst of a bunch of, con- you know, he's been in the midst of some controversy with current religious authorities, and uh, Luke laid out all of those controver- controversies for us kind of in a pattern. And uh, and last week we looked at the controversy over their interpretation of the, uh, of the Sabbath, and the next verse is really interesting. After that uh, talk about you know, rest, Jesus retreated into the mountains where he rested and he prayed all night. And, uh, and the thing I want to draw your attention to out of this next passage is that he was up there, he prayed all night, and then he drew a crowd of disciples to him from which he appointed the 12 apostles. And that verbiage is important because Jesus is about to speak to the disciples. And when he does so, Luke is describing the crowd of disciples that have come to him in the mountains, uh, not just the, the 12 apostles that he's named in front of them. So that's where we'll pick up with Jesus's public ministry here in verse 17. This is the beginning section of the sermon on the plain. Read with me, if you will. And he, Jesus, came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let's pray. Father, uh, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be good and right, pleasing before you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And I ask that you would take this muddled head and help me to speak with clarity and love for you uh, and serve these friends well this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start by just reminding you of some of the things that we've looked at in the book of Luke that leads us up to this point. We've seen Jesus display authority over temptation when he withstands temptation from the devil on an empty stomach. It was quite impressive. We've seen that he speaks with authority amongst other religious leaders in the temple. 
uh, there's a story where the people marveled. They said, who is this who speaks with, with such authority? We've seen his authority over physical suffering as he's healing people. He did it in this passage. He's done it many, many times. We've seen his authority over the forces of evil when he casts out demons. And we've seen his divine authority when he forgives people of their sins and proves that authority when he heals a paralytic. So the point is this, that Luke has made the case in many different ways up until now that when Jesus moves, he moves with authority. And when he speaks, he speaks with authority. And when people are coming to him, they're coming to him as an authority. And one of the ways you know this is true is because of just who is upset all along the way. Uh, He is upsetting people who see themselves as being in authority. And so let me ask you this. What do you see when you see Jesus in the mountains subverting like authoritative norms and establishing uh, his own authority and drawing people to himself in the mountains. What you see is you see a revolutionary leader who is establishing a new order of things. This is at the core of some of the discussion between Jesus and the Pharisees back in chapter 5 where Jesus said, Uh, that he is establishing a new way of things and the old will be discarded. And as we look at Jesus's, um, as we look at Jesus's public ministry, what you see right at the core of it is the establishment of a new kingdom and the discarding of an old kingdom, two kingdoms, a new kingdom being established in Jesus's ministry and an old kingdom that is uh, being discard- becoming obsolete and being discarded. Two kingdoms. And not for nothing, this is what Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter 1, where he says, he says this, this is just glorious. He says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You see that? Two, two kingdoms going on. And so my pitch to you this morning is that when we look at the life of Jesus, that's what we're looking at, is the establishment of a revolutionary leader who is setting up up a, a new kingdom and a new order of things. And the sermon, the sermon on the plain that we're looking at is essentially a description for us of what kingdom life looks like. And the question as we look through this sermon should be to each of us, what kingdom do I belong to? As we look at this. And so I'm going to look at this, uh, this, this section of the sermon this way. As we make a way through. Just this, this, first, uh, this first section of the sermon. I'm going to talk about who this kingdom that Jesus is establishing is for. Who is Jesus' kingdom for. Uh, what, what the kingdom promises. And what the kingdom warns. Okay, Who is it for? What are the promises of the kingdom? And what are the warnings that come with this kingdom? All right. So first, who the kingdom is for. You just look at the audience in front of him and you get a sense of who Jesus is attracting and establishing this new kingdom with. Uh, The first is you get a sense for just the vast breadth of the people that are coming to see Jesus. They're coming from all over the place. Um, Judea and Jerusalem. Jerusalem is very far south at this point. 
Um, Tyre and Sidon are also named, and this is just giving us a sense of just how far people are coming to be with Jesus. There's a vast uh, breadth of people, but this is also important because if you came from Judea and Jerusalem, you were probably Jewish. That you came with a, a Jewish heritage and a Jewish background and understanding of life. If you came from Tyre and Sidon, those were seacoast towns that were also very, very far away. And there was a, a much uh, stronger mixture of Jewish and Gentile people there. And so what you see is just this vast breadth of different types of people that are also coming with a variety of backgrounds uh, and finding their company with Jesus. So you get a sense for who the kingdom is for by uh, the breadth of people that are there, uh, uh, the breadth of Jesus' disciples, but you also get a sense uh, when you look at their condition. Uh, you have people that came near to him to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowds sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. And so what we see is that this crowd, in large part, is in a condition of distress. The old kingdom and its ways are simply not working out well for them. And Jesus, and this is just beautiful, Jesus welcomes these people who come with nothing to offer, uh, but simply need his help. And he attends to each one that's in distress with a great generosity of spirit. And so here's the point I'm making. As we look at the breadth and the condition of these disciples, what we're seeing something is about what Jesus is communicating to us about what the kingdom is for. He's saying that his kingdom is a place where people from all places who bring all types of afflictions belong. That it's a place of belonging. And when we see things like this, uh, those who are familiar with the Old Testament should be thinking about David. And the life of David is really fascinating. You can look at it in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. But there's a period of time in David's life where he was um, anointed the next king of Israel. There was a current king at the time, Saul. He was anointed the king of Israel, but there was a, a period of time before he actually was coronated the king of Israel. And during that time... Um, Jesus or David is known as the ascendant new revolutionary king in the mountains and he's on the run from Saul and he's hiding out in a cave and people are coming to him. I mean, the parallels are amazing, but who came to David? It says everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is bitter in soul. These are the people that are coming into Jesus's kingdom. Uh, or just think about the 12 men that Jesus named as his, as his apostles in the previous passage. All were Galilean country boys. It's, a, it's a probably an apt way of describing them. Um, four were fishermen. One was a despised tax collector. All were probably poor. In Acts 4, there's this great story of Peter and John preaching, and the people marveled because they, they, they said, who are these people? They, uh, they were uneducated common men, is the way they thought about them. And so the counterintuitive fact of Jesus' ministry is that Jesus looks to populate his kingdom with people who have little influence, money, power, or control. 
And the point that I want to make before you is that the kingdom of Jesus is a gathering of the weak. And the hope of Jesus is that the weak belong in Jesus' kingdom. And let me ask you a question at this point. Are there ways that you feel weak this morning? I got to tell you, um, just in conversations with Matt and Jeff, Jessica and I talked about this a couple days ago for a while. Um, the common refrain that we're hearing from people as we engage the people of this church in and out of this church is just deep tiredness, deep exhaustion. The feeling like the challenges of these days that are right in in front of us might be more than we have to be able to match. And and if that's you this morning, um, I just want you to hear that to say you're not alone in that exhaustion, but also that you can find encouragement because Jesus' kingdom is a gathering of the weak who come looking to Jesus with hope. And this hope is placed... This hope is well-placed in the promises that we see in this passage. He goes on to talk about promises. And, uh, and how, does this, how does this kingdom Jesus is establishing? Like, what is he promising in this? If you look forward, I want to just put it this way, that Jesus recognizes their longings and he trains them in hope. The, um, and the first thing I want to say is that when we see uh, that when Jesus looks over the crowd, he sees their longings. It's this dramatic moment in verse 20. It says he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and began to speak. And what did he see? He saw people who were hungry. He saw people whose tears were frequent, who were people who were hated and excluded. And just by seeing them, he is saying that he sees them. But what's interesting is that far from looking at these people and, and just giving them really good advice, he recognizes their longings and, uh, and, and he trains them in hope. He says, you who are materially poor now have much more than you know because your faith, your, in your faith is the very wealth of the kingdom that belongs to you. You who are hungry now will one day be satisfied. He says, I acknowledge these things are present now, but that's not the end of things. He gives them reason to hope. You who weep now will one day laugh. And you who experience hatred now can have hope because your reward is great in heaven. And, and so here he, here's how he trains them in hope. He describes their current suffering as temporary. It's very real. But it's also very temporary is the way Jesus talks about it. And he train, what he does is he trains their eyes to imagine a time when the kingdom is fully realized. And that the, the, the sufferings that, that, that can feel so painful now, there will be a time when they will exist on the, like, on the horizon behind them. As Jesus lifts his eyes on his disciples, he lifts their eyes to help them see the hope of this new kingdom that's coming with him. Remember what Jesus said when he uttered his mission statement back in chapter four. He said, he quoted the prophet Isaiah and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim good news 
to the poor. And that's exactly what we see Jesus doing here in this passage. He calls them to look forward to a time that he promises when this good news will be realized. But he also calls them to look back. Right at the end of this little section, it's really, really interesting. He says, look back, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. He, he associates them with the great prophets of God who also su- who went before them and also suffered because of their association with Jesus. Your present suffering is itself a sign of good news that the kingdom is near and that you're honored before God. And just as Jesus brings them encouragement by helping them see who went before them, I think it's also important for us to consider the one who went before us. Because one of the profound things about each of these attributes that Jesus listed, the, the, this description of longings that Jesus listed in this passage, Jesus himself, the greater prophet, also suffered in each of these ways. And so when you think about the poor, or maybe when you consider your own poverty, remember that Jesus sought out his own poverty when he did not consider equality with God a thing to to be grasped, but sought the place of a servant. And, And when you consider the hungry, or you consider your own hungers, remember that Jesus' own hunger, as he willingly fasted for 40 days, Uh, in the wilderness. And when you consider those who weep, or you consider your own tears, remember that Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and he wept over the state of the city of Jerusalem and the death of his best friend. And, And when you consider those who are reviled, or you consider those who accuse you and the hatred you might be experiencing, remember the deep persecution and slander and hatred directed at Jesus all the way to the cross. That Jesus isn't just describing the longings of the people that he came to serve. He's also describing the life that's right in front of him. And and why would he do that? Why would he willingly go through all of those things? The scripture tells us it's because of the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Do you hear that? The hope, that that hope anchored Jesus in the midst of suffering, hope in the day to come, was strong enough and it anchored Jesus during a time of immense suffering. And so the gospel message of Jesus is right at its core Hope for those who are suffering now. Because there's not one of us who stands before God and actually stand before Him and has something to offer Him. That, that, that we all stand before Him in a way of poverty and we all have longings and, uh, and, and sufferings that we bring and we've all failed to live the life that He calls us to. Not one of us can escape this claim but the transcendent hope that we have amidst all the ways that we fail, amidst all the ways that we suffer, uh, all the ways that we weak, is that Jesus Christ died a sinner's death to give new life to sinners. 
And the hope that we have for all those who look to Jesus in faith is that we have been given the gift of immense value, of life with him, a gift that we don't deserve. And the, the only place, this is really the only place where we can find great hope in, that, that can anchor us in the midst of our suffering. That Jesus Christ died, Jesus Christ rose, and Jesus Christ will come again. And when he does, when Jesus Christ comes again, the full weight of the realization of this new kingdom that he is establishing will be there, will be present amongst us. The dead will rise. Every tear will be wiped away. The lame will leap for joy, and the excluded will know the warm embrace of God. And so the question for you is this one. What kingdom are you a part of? Is the promise of hope in Christ's coming kingdom strong enough to hold you in your suffering? Does hope whisper to you or does it shout? And as we think about our hope, I think it's also important to note the warnings that we see right here at the, at the end of the passage. And I know I'm out of time, but I'm going to try and land this plane for you here in the next few minutes. But there are warnings here. Jesus is pronouncing blessings and woes. And I'm calling woe a warning. Why am I doing that? Well, the short answer is because Matt told me to. Um, Blessings and woes are uh, blessings and woes are common throughout the Old Testament. Usually, they came from a prophet, and they were pronounced to the covenant people of God. And it was a form of warning against doing something. And I was, you know, talking with Matt about this, and I was like ramble, assaulting him with rambling thoughts. And Matt said, "Woe to you who wander into traffic." That was like a good way of warning them about wisdom, what wisdom in this life looks like. And there's so many times where I've walked through this passage and uh, with people, and they've they've thought they've asked the question, and I can see why. Does God hate rich people? Uh, does God hate the rich and the successful? Is there a place for in God's kingdom for those who have experienced wealth and success and comfort in this world? Well, the short answer of that to that is no. But what this is, is a, is a passage that helps us understand everything we have and we don't have in the light of grand, God's, uh, the grand vision of God's kingdom that's coming with Jesus. And it is inviting us to live this life with, with the freedom of knowing the joy of the kingdom life to come. And it protects us from what is an exhausting pressure to maximize the joys in this life. And the warning that those who are comfortable need to hear is that it is it can be very tempting to, to, see, to see the storing up of wealth or the storing up of experiences or laughter in this life as the ultimate end. And Jesus is saying, woe unto you as a way of warning you from seeing this life as all there is. But those whose lives are found in Jesus will look to the next life with hope. That that life is the one to be excited about, more so than this one. 
And th- this point is being driven home to me lately. Um, just as a way of um, you know, seeing comforts and discomforts that we experience every day, looking at things that we want as if those will solve like the deep longings in life, right? I have a friend, and he has been battling COVID for, um, for days now in the hospital, for a long time in the hospital, and he really has been in the fight of his life. And this is a godly man uh, who loves Jesus deeply, and uh, he and his wife have experienced success in just about any way that you could define it. Um, and uh, and he has been battling for his life. And his wife, I didn't I didn't call her and ask her for permission for this, but she posted this on Facebook. I didn't want to say, "Hey, can I use this thing that you said uh, and 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 uh, use it?" But I, it's, I want to give it to you as just a way of describing what it looks like. To look to the next life with great hope. It's beautiful words that she wrote, asking people for prayer. She says this. God is more powerful than COVID, and I know there will be victory. I continue to pray for earthly healings, but there will be healing one way or another. His healing is assured, she said. Continue to surround us with prayers of comfort, healing, and hope. I am resting in the peace that Jesus brings. And I I just read that to you because I think she's embodying in just a few words what I've been trying to spend a sermon to convince you of. What it looks like in plenty and in want to live with faithful hope and the life that's to come. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, help us to believe these things that we're straining to believe. Holy Spirit, I pray that right now, over these next few minutes, that you would be about the business of proclaiming the truth of Jesus to our hearts that we need to hear so badly. So help us, help us, we pray, to look not just to the next life, but seek to serve you with freedom now in these days. I pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.